Welcome to Psyche Magic, a podcast about waking up to the subconscious via our nocturnal dreams. I'm your host, Jordan Hale. I'm a psychotherapist based in Nashville, Tennessee. Together, we'll learn to befriend the unknown and her deep well of wisdom. While aspects of this podcast may feel therapeutic, it is never meant to take the place of therapy. Welcome back to Psyche Magic. I hope you're easing into the year and weathering the winter with softness, slowness, and sweet dreams. I have something a little special in store for you all for this episode. I'm going to be discussing my favorite show of all time, The Sopranos. One of the very first ideas I had for this podcast was to do a treatment of a pet theory of mine and some of my friends, looking at the notoriously nebulous final scene of The Sopranos as a dream sequence. I know this may sound far-fetched, but after you hear the following discussion, you may not be so sure after all. Indeed, this show is near and dear to my heart because of its thoughtful focus on several of my special interests, psychology, dream analysis, and yes, organized crime. One of my other favorite movies is Goodfellas. I've seen it countless times over homemade Italian dinners and absolutely never tire of it. There's something so satisfying about the lessons we can learn via vigilante archetypes. Those who operate on the fringes and outside of the systems that steadily and stealthily oppress. But then sadly and inevitably, they are corrupted by their own power once they've gained it. The lessons are often harsh, but there is a shadow aspect of mine that is incredibly satisfied watching it all build to a climax and then crumble, akin to my enjoyment of horror films. Much in the way that BDSM can be such a healing space for folks to thoughtfully dismantle and explore taboos regarding sexuality within the context of explicit communication and safety building measures, this subject matter tends to release a psychic pressure valve I didn't know was there, at least not consciously. The exploration of the deeper inner worlds of some of these tragic and terrible characters is even more exciting to me because I get to see the shared humanity and bring the type of people who commit atrocious acts into a more relatable and human place. Indeed, they often even dream of the same things I do, my teeth falling out, being unprepared, being watched and worried. David Chase, one of the show's creators, writes, quote, I think if we didn't have dreams as a species, we wouldn't bother with the movies. I think they're so related. And movies don't have to have dreams in them to be dreamlike. Movies are dreamlike. Unquote. He goes on to reference both Citizen Kane and Vertigo. This ties in with yet another special interest of mine, my unrelenting fascination with cinema, the dreams and worlds we animate and bring to life tangibly. This episode will be a chance to explore the incredible feat of capturing such a realistic vision of the unconscious, the dream double life we all share as a plot device to enhance the deep drama of the show that has given it such incredible staying power. 
Not only this, but the therapy scenes still enrapture me rewatch after rewatch. During my first viewing, therapy was just as foreign a concept to me as it was to so many of its viewers and its characters, still being quite stigmatized at the time. But the show depicted therapy from a psychodynamic perspective, building on the early ideas of pioneers in the field, such as Freud and Jung, including their emphasis on exploring the subconscious via dream analysis. Eventually, there came a rehashing of the show where I myself was now watching from the perspective of a therapist and relating to it in an entirely different way. Perhaps what I most appreciate is the show's unbridled foray deeply into each character's psyche, not just the key players. As a college student watching on a laptop in a dorm room with her best friend, this was the first time a TV show had pulled me in the same way a great series of novels can. The depth and breadth of character exposition was unprecedented to me, and indeed to everyone at the time of its debut. The Sopranos changed what was possible in terms of capturing its audience, mind, body, and soul for decades to come. It will always be a formative part of my personal growth and continues to challenge me and expand my mind each time I revisit it. I invited my friends Michael McMillan, Hollywood actor, writer, and host of the Bigfoot Collectors Club podcast, and my guest on episode one of this very podcast, as well as my friend Eduardo Dominech, attorney and my original soprano shaman on my first foray into the show. We watched every single episode together, one at a time, with long and heady conversations to follow. As a quick disclaimer, the episode will cut back and forth between my conversations with both Michael and Eduardo, and you'll notice the sound quality in Eduardo's interview isn't quite up to our usual standards because we recorded it before I had invested in proper podcasting gear. But it's so special to me, and you can even hear the faint snore of his precious pup Kimbo, who has since passed away and who we miss dearly. So I hope you enjoy this homespun episode where I get to dive into some of my all-time favorite topics with some of my all-time favorite people. Oh, and it goes without saying, but just in case, spoilers abound from here on out. Now onward to my deep dive of dream sequences throughout The Sopranos. I'm so excited, Michael. I have been wanting to have like a deeper dive conversation with you about The Sopranos, but specifically the dream sequence element of The Sopranos, which I know we both have an affinity for. I would say that's yeah. the thing that keeps me coming back to the show over and over that, again. You would be the only Sopranos viewer who <laughs> comes back dude, specifically for the dream sequences. <laughs> dude, I will read you a passage in our shared text we have here, the Sopranos sessions, where David Chase talks about that. And he says that so many people like complained about the dream sequences when the show was airing and just did not like them and that he refused to stop doing it. And it made me so happy. Yeah, there's the uh, <laughs> there's the less yak and more whacking contingent as mm -hmm. they talk about in the the authors talk about in the book, uh, Matt Solar Sites and Alan Seppenwall. Let me start by yes. asking the questions. Yes. 
Yes. Um, let me turn Michael, the why tables. don't you just take over this interview? That I, That's fine with me, honestly. No, I, I was just really? go, going to ask, are you, we mentioned it briefly before recording, are you in the middle of a re sopranos re-binge currently yes, i am i currently am i'm on season one episode four at the moment and this is probably my fifth time watching the show all the way through fourth or fifth time so remind me you watched it originally and you've just it's just been one of your favorites or you came yep. later well so no i did not watch it when it was on um i was too young and i didn't know what was going on so i came to the sopranos in college through a mutual friend who had binged it when he was studying abroad so we started watching it bit by bit and i was hooked immediately like i just was obsessed so yeah what about you rightfully so i i watched it Originally, I went back and rewatched The Sopranos with this book in hand. Yeah. During the pandemic, during the time when I was doing nothing at home. And that was like a really, that was a great pandemic pastime because you oh. were rewatching a show like most people were. And then this book, The Soprano Sessions, was like a wonderful read and sort of episode by episode guide. And I think it works. I'm just going to plug the book. I think it works if you've never seen the show before. Yeah. Or if you're coming back and revisiting it, I would just recommend don't skip ahead in the book. Although if you're listening to sure. this, we're definitely going to spoil we're the gonna show. We're going to spoil it. You. We're going to so, spoil the shit out of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And I would say that for me, the book works so well because it's such a rich conversation, which is also part of what I love about this show is that they're not afraid to keep this very like complex dialogue going the whole time. And they yeah. don't underestimate their audience that's here for that. They're not trying to, you know, cater right. to what people want. They're trying to make the show that they want to make. <laughs> Yeah, and I respected that, and I respect David Chase, you know, and obviously the book is compiled. Some of it's fresh, but some of it is also, like, reaching back on these TV critics, like, reviews of the episodes over the years and interviews with David Chase over the years. And it is funny. I mean, David Chase is definitely in the annals of TV creators who, like, doesn't care what his audience wants. Doesn't care. Does not he's, care. He cares about the characters and the story that he's telling and that he wants to tell. And as you mentioned, there does seem to be and there are instances where they where they point them out in the book where the show will intentionally push back on critics and listeners who say, I don't want any of this stuff. I think the things that make the show great are the things that a lot of people would say they don't like about the show, which is the examination of the psyche and personality development and I think a lot of people forget because the show is so sensational and because the mob stuff is so funny and oh, so yeah. thrilling and so fucked up. So that might be why a lot of people were watching the show. But let's not forget the show opens with a therapy session and it yes. opens with this really great moment of symbology of Tony staring up at a naked woman statue in Melfi's office. And literally like, I think the first shot or second shot is him peering up in between her legs, almost looking up to the place of entry in, through which all of us enter, most of us enter this world. 
You know, we all do come through the vessel of another human being, whether it's between the legs or cesarean section. And and, right. and and the whole show is, especially season one, is an examination of his complicated relationship with his mom and then how that plays out through his relationship with women from everyone from his wife to his therapist to his actual mother to the dancers at uh, at the strip club to everything, you know, yeah, to his mistresses. It's always been a show about pathology and the psyche. And I love it. I love it for that. And I like you. I loved the dream sequences because I also love it when shows seem to be about real world things. And and it also did the real world very, very, very well. It had a grim and grittiness and groundedness to it, naturalism to it. I love it when those shows get weird. You know what I mean? That's always my favorite. Yes. Well, when they're not afraid to tackle some of the mysteries and some of the unknown. And for me, I think the reason I say that that's what keeps me coming back to the show is that those dream sequences are symbolic and they're open to interpretation. And I find myself interpreting them differently at different points in my life and based on kind of where I am in my own growth and evolution. And I love when a show can really make space for that in that way. But I too, just because, you know, I'm rewatching the show right now. And I was so struck by like the tone in which the show opens, where it really is about the therapy room itself and about the way that Tony is already so uncomfortable in this mm-hmm. space, right? He's mm-hmm. posturing and he's trying to figure out what Dr. Melfi's getting at. And um, we're already just learning so much about his character just by watching him try to interact in that way and made in during a time when therapy still i mean i feel like it does still today but especially in 1997 or 98 whenever the series started had so much stigma to it this ties in with what we're talking about this is just from one of the interviews where david chase is saying You know what it must be about the audience's resistance to dreams. It's like you're presenting to me this fictional world, and I buy into that, right? The world of The Sopranos. It's not real, and I know that. But now you're telling me that there's a world beyond that? If I buy into that fictional world, The Sopranos universe, now you're telling me I have to go to some other level? Then it means what's gone before is not real, and I want to think what's gone before is real. I've got to get to the verisimilitude portion of everything. Otherwise, what am I watching this for? I've got to believe it. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder, (laughs) I I think that's a very smart point. I also wonder if he's overthinking it. I feel like a lot of the pushback, I think it's fascinating. And I think that that's what he's interested in is sort of like the world within the world, the world beyond the world. Yeah. But I also think there's a contingent of, of viewers who are just like, we've only got 56 minutes every week. And I want plot. I, you know, people were watching it for plot and they were like, I don't want to waste 20 minutes on high school dream like locker room nightmares. I want to see what's going to happen. And that's why I think the the show does really benefit from a a rewatch because you can sort of calm the page because it it did have this such page turning aspect to it. But you, 
You can calm that down and you can yes. go, okay, I know where this is all going. Let's just take it moment by moment now. And I think the show is much oh, better if you watch it from the, we're watching a man struggle with unpacking who he is and why he behaves the way he does. And it's just far more interesting to watch a mobster do that than uh say your average person. Although Mad Men comes along a couple of, you know exactly or about 10 years later and I think hits on a lot of those same themes. You know, Matt Weiner being I know yeah with an with, average yeah with Matt guy. Matt Weiner also obviously coming from the Sopranos writer writer room in the second half of the show. So there's similarities there. But Terrence Winter. Yep. Yep. Well and that's what he says. That's what Kevin Finnerty says. Well is he Kevin or is he Tony when he's waking up, right? But he's like, who am I? Where am I going? Like this is what the show is concerned with is really these kind of big existential questions. But you're so right. You experience something so differently when you're able to sit down and go episode by episode at your own pace versus at the time you're waiting for these long periods of time. And there's that like urgency that people probably. Yeah. You're like, there's a mob war going on. Why are we falling asleep with this guy? (laughs) I know. Going back and watching it again, you know, what, 15 years later. I know. It did strike me. And then also watching it all in a condensed way, not strung out over the course of many years. It was the first time that I went, wait a minute. And I think I had texted you because you and your your husband, a good friend of mine as well, I think it just recently wrapped up your rewatch at that time, your fourth, third or fourth, whatever it was. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. There were a lot of clues in that last scene that make me think maybe maybe the last scene is a dream. This is why we're here. Okay. Because the more I have learned about those clues, the more that I have started to subscribe to the theory that the final scene of The Sopranos is a dream sequence. At the end. So what happens is we've got two scenes. We've got one where Tony, again, it's warm. It's idyllic. He's doing chores like out in the backyard, which Tony's never doing chores. He's doing chores like a, you know, all American dad. And Carmela comes out and is like, oh, I think we're going to do Halston's. I think that's the consensus. And I'm like, okay, in what world would like AJ be leaving his girlfriend to go like meet you guys at a restaurant to have a family dinner? No, that would not happen. (laughs) It's the series finale, George. (laughs) That is not a thing. Also, what's Holston's? We've never heard of this. We act like we go there all the time. Like, what even is this place? This is not. This is not not Vesuvio. It's not. Yeah, it's like if yeah. Why? Why this place that they always went to? But it's an all-American place. It's an American diner. Uh, have um, you read the title of the episode? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, meet you at Holston's. Great. And it's like, happy family moment. Then cut to super cold, lighting, depressing scene, and we're with Junior. And Tony's talking to Junior, and it's just like Olivia said, it's all a big nothing. Junior doesn't remember any of it. He doesn't remember who he is or what he did. And we still can't figure out if that's legit. Or if he's got flashes of it, but again, you're bringing in dementia into mm-hmm. <laughs> the common conversation between, I mean, like 
Mm-hmm. My grandparents have had it. I mean, people yep. people have had it. And it's like, how are you going to yep. say, where's the line between, I know you fucking tried to shoot me, old motherfucker. Yeah. And like, do you even know your own name? You know, mm-hmm. it, it's very, they, they don't answer that question. I don't think they should. That's yeah. fine. Well, and it's just this moment of Tony just having that sad realization of like, wow, what's it all even really for at the end? He's looking ahead and he's like, oh man, like, you know how much, this how, you know how much mental energy he's to hold on to that much anger and hate. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got shot by, okay, whatever. you know what I mean? But, but how much has that served him throughout the whole, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you can't assess the mistakes of characters too, I mean, like, He's held on to that throughout the whole series. And then he shows up and it's like the dude doesn't even remember he shot me or my name or anything like that. And I've held on to this for how many years? You know what I mean? Like yeah. at some point that's got to come in because a lot of people live their life that way. And that's this show is as much a commentary on mental health as anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as it is Definitely. on Gabagool and, and <laughs> Italian needs. Definitely. I mean, they're giving you a character that you don't have to identify with, but that gives you a lot of the same vulnerabilities that normal people share. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's a mob boss, but, you know, people yeah. understand anxiety and being that angry. What is Tony if not an angry, depressed person? He might be the sad clown, but he's never shown that he's actually happy about anything. Mm-hmm. Which is like really sad because you get to the ending and it's like, like you're saying, this is like all American. This is kind of like putting the whole picture together. And after you said it, I'm like, when have I ever seen him eat an onion ring? We actually do get resolve of what I think a lot of the overarching story is where he sort of lets go of Uncle Junior and all the stuff that Uncle Junior had. And he gets the big win. He basically defeats Uncle Junior and walks away from him, right? And you could have, you could end the story there and go, okay, Tony got out by the skin of his teeth, at least this part of his life. You know, there's like closure here. Yes. There's some character closure there. There's a storyline that's been bubbling since season one with Junior going against Tony that that Tony wins. Right. Yep. And it's it's a melancholy win. It's cost him relationships, friendships, literally, figuratively, family. His family has fallen apart in many ways. His son has been dragged into what he's doing. His daughter is now going to, who we thought was getting away, is now going to be probably become a mob lawyer. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he is sort of fucked, you know, in a way. I think his therapist has left him because we've, we've yep. learned – you really can't save him. He's a sociopath and all the therapy is doing is just reinforcing his own sociopathy or psychopathy. You oh, know, what a brutal moment in the show. Like, wow, brutal. And I guess all based on real studies that were coming out, like at the time, this was like new information. New yeah, information. exactly. Yeah. So he's stuck, even though we get some character results, but he, we know he's stuck. We know yeah. he's going to be stuck in this cycle until the day he does die. Mm-hmm. And that day may be that night or the next night or whatever. Yep. 
Um, so, so it does stand a reason that maybe we could cut from the actual final scene yeah. to a dream sequence that is sort of showing us all of Tony's psyche on full display at where he is after that resolution with his uncle comes. Exactly. Is, Making this kind of metaphorical piece of, of mm-hmm. work, of art, about this culmination, about this journey. Here we go. We're at the final scene. This is it. So the scene, there are several things that I looked into here. All details, like setup and scenery. First up, when Tony walks into the diner, okay, super warm lighting, right? Like very warm, happy looking, idyllic. When he walks in, the song that's playing says, all that you dream. That's the line of the song as he enters the restaurant. And it's the only line that we can like audibly hear all that you dream. Okay. So he walks in. Why? Okay. Sorry. Wait, what? I have to bring this up. (laughs) Okay, do it. You realize like he opens the door, he looks in, it's whatever. They go back, he opens the door again and he's sitting. It's total shining. Yes, dude. He, okay. he sees himself. If you're talking about shining, then go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. Oh, I absolutely you. am. Yeah. He sees himself sitting down. Yes. Like the way that they cut yes. that. So the song says all that you dream. And then he's watching himself from the outside. Whoa. Yes. Okay. Now on the wall behind him, by the way, are a few different images. Two of these images are of football players. We know that Tony played in high school and like very recurrently dreams about his high school football coach, right? This is like an important part of his psyche. And then the other picture in the background is the mansion. It's a huge mansion. And it actually looks very reminiscent of the mansion that he approaches at the end of the Kevin Finnerty episodes. Where Steve Buscemi is trying to get him to go inside. Yes. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Where he's, yes. where he's beckoning him to come. Oh. Yeah, dude. No, I saw so there this was a bunch of art and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I just like, you almost have to stop and spend like a half you do. hour just looking no, at that stuff. To... This all matters. Like all these little details matter. So we see him. Yeah, we hear the song. We have his weird POV shot of him watching himself sit down. We see these images in the background that have to do with these other sort of like dream sequences. Then (laughs) the characters start entering the restaurant. Okay. We've got members only guy, which obviously. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. Don't. You you can't separate him from AJ because they come in at the Uh same time and they do that on purpose. Yes. That's significant. Now, but, members only, let's talk about the references there. Because, okay, you know, please, right? I don't know about, about members only. Okay, I don't know about you. I'm going to hand this to you in a second. In dreams, oftentimes, the representation of the figure or the subject is not the true, like, meaning of that figure or that subject. So when we talk about members only, you're going to give us all these references, right? So, like, this figure is meant to represent something else. No, so well, tell us about tell us about members only. No, members only is a callback. This is just really, really good writing. Seasons ago, this guy wins the lotto because his grandma in Florida uh-huh. died and left a huge inheritance. But he's a mom. I forget guy his name. Yeah, yeah. 
So it's the episode is called Members Only because he gets yes. the inheritance and is able to afford a higher, you know, it might as well be called Lorraine or Givenchy or whatever. Yeah. Just like he's able to elevate. He asked Tony, hey, I got this inheritance. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a taste and let me go. And Tony, they kick it down to Chris. They kick it down to yeah. all this. It, it's complicated. And like the fact that this guy wearing a members only jacket is a callback to seasons before of Absolutely. the inability to escape this kind of life. Okay. Yes. And do you remember who else used to wear members only? Who? Not Chrissy. <laughs> no. No. Who? Okay. The other character who always wore members only jackets was Richie oh. April. George, damn. Richie April was an active threat to Tony. Damn, Jordan. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, there's a lot of theories about all this stuff. Like, it is very clear what happens to Tony at the end of The Soprano. Let's you know that. And it's a callback to those kinds of, like, things where you are trapped in the life and the life is going to ultimately <laughs> sort itself out. But, damn, I didn't know Richie wore that, too. Richie wore that too. And so this figure represents an active threat to Tony. And you're right. It's not an accident that AJ is right behind him because AJ is part of the new threat to Tony. Damn. Okay. So everybody comes in. We see the two black guys come in. Those two. Okay. So remember at the end of season one, Tony almost gets killed by two young black men. Uh huh. So this is another like subconscious, like memory of a threat, right? Okay. So like everybody's coming in. We've got these different like threats being represented, and then we have this really like sweet family conversation where AJ is like, "Oh yeah, Dad, remember what you said that one time about how we should focus on the good times?" Like he remembers his dad's advice, and it's like AJ doesn't talk like that he doesn't act like that like this is what tony wishes could happen you're getting back to the shining jordan dude i think this scene is an alternate reality slash so a dream he's, he's slash... already been dead yeah yes no one in this scene is acting like anyone exactly exactly this is a kevin Finnerty moment but for the end of the series this is yeah. an in-between moment and david chase says whether or not Tony Soprano is alive it or dead matter. is not the point. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it could be both. Yeah. It could be that he is in between. I mean, like, no one is doing what they should be. No. Why would he give you that shining scene if he didn't mm-hmm. want you to think about that? You're watching Tony or Tony's watching Tony or... Exactly. We are in, like, a liminal place with Tony in this scene. And I'm going to take you back to Bobby Bacala's quote, which is, I bet you don't even hear it when it happens, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. at the very least, both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is what David Chase says about the final scene. Whether Tony Soprano is alive or dead is not the point. To continue to search for the answer is fruitless. The final scene of The Sopranos raises a spiritual question that has no right or wrong answer. I mean, he's kind of an emo kid, right? But <laughs> Totally. Okay. Hey, with that mother, come on. Yeah. <laughs> come on now. He at least killed her. Um, okay, other tidbits from the book. I, I wrote down a few like interesting things here. Oh, okay. They talked about 
something interesting. They brought up the concept of Schrodinger's cat. Do you know anything about this? I didn't. Jordan, this cat may or may not exist. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Does, does that like, mean anything to you? <laughs> this cat, the idea of Schrodinger's cat, I had to look it up because there was a cat in a box and they had closed You the don't box. know that cat's not in there? Exactly. So they had said there's a version, there's a reality, right? A split reality. One version where the cat is alive and one version where the cat is yeah, dead. And both are true. There's a reality where we're not friends, where yes, I said something yes, to you too, yes. too far and you know, we're not friends. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Where both are true yeah. simultaneously. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you prove the opposite? That's the thing. It's like a lot of these logical exercises are if you can't prove it to be untrue, then it can be in existence. Yes. In, 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 we don't need to go too far into semantics of that. but Well, and know. we know that linear time is a construct. Like we know this. And so there's something to be said for viewing this scene as more of a liminal in-between Kevin Finnerty-esque moment that we're witnessing. Even something as like basic as if you never saw the last episode of The Sopranos and you just had to imagine it. Mm-hmm. Tony Soprano exists in someone's mind yeah. with a happy ending. Yeah. You know, even, even something as simple as that, it's like this character. For sure can still exist in not necessarily cyberspace, but in existence. A hundred percent. It's weird. They also brought paths, up, but, okay, yeah. in the book, this is the Soprano Sessions book, by the way, they also brought up Carmela's quote that she had when she was in Paris, where it was her, yeah. you know, first big trip abroad. And she was saying, wow, it's like these other people never existed until you got there. Oh, damn. That's I know. Sweet. Well, I mean, why would that be there if but for <laughs> to slam dunk on those theories? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's well, shit. You've been abroad, yeah, <laughs> you, you know, dude. I know that feeling, yeah, I know that feeling of like, wow, like there's this whole other world out there, but it only exists when I experience it. Meadows doesn't make it all the way in till mm-hmm. the very end, too. Yep. Met- and there's the tension with. Meadow parking the car and not being able to do it. And we are scared that either someone's walking out of that bathroom to shoot the family yes. or someone's walking up to, to, to Meadow's driver's side window or as she's crossing the road, going to run her over. So yes. there is this, there is this sense of Meadow being on the outside, like the Kevin infinity thing that there does seem to be a, yes, we can't complete this, right? Like right. There's, the, a... there's something there's something about Meadow being because I feel like AJ really is a lost cause, unfortunately. AJ Worst is character ever in the footsteps of his father. But like there is this sense of like the worst thing that could happen to Tony yeah. is something happening to Meadow. That Meadow is sort of a lifeline for him, as we I saw. Know. In the episode where she pulls him out of limbo. So there's a version if this is a, if he literally gets whacked at the very end that Meadow walks in just in time to see her father be be shot mm-hmm. and maybe the rest of the family and Meadow is the sole survivor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, she has always been like sort of an externalized version of Tony's conscience in a lot of ways and in a lot of moments that unfold between them. 
And the part going back to the college road trip where she's always known him better than he's known himself in a way I feel like. And he's always trying to protect her from what he is. Yes. And, and there's that, I don't think it's unintentional that they chose Meadow over Carmilla or Anthony to have that moment of tension with at the very end, because I do think she's the favorite family member of his yeah you know um and yeah like, if there's any hope for tony soprano it's yes. now in meadow exactly and if this is a dream then she would symbolize that last sort of shred of hope of humanity yes. for him the last thing to catch up with him as the family is sitting down together yeah. in a moment of peace you know and may not make it <laughs> you know yeah. so there's there's all these ways. Like, I think the scene really works if you analyze it in that sense. Now, I don't know if it is a literal, if that's literally what they were going for. Because I, I do go back and forth and I do sometimes go. And my my instinct was, watching it the first time was, yeah. he got whacked. On this same note, by the way, so you're talking about your kind of gut take of that moment, right? Mm-hmm. David Chase talks about this too. So he said that two years before the show ended, he had an ending in mind where Tony dies. And it was Tony getting called to a meeting with Johnny Sack in Manhattan and going back through the Lincoln Tunnel for this meeting. And then it was going to go black as he goes through mm-hmm. the tunnel. Mm-hmm. But he decided not to go that direction. So... Yeah, I think that's smart. He didn't want it to be so clear. He wanted it to be a mystery. He said that it's really about the feeling of death being able to come at any moment for any of us. And so he's saying that the point is not necessarily that he definitely was killed. It's that he could have been killed and that that's the feeling that we all live with. Time here is precious. It could end at any moment. And love is the only defense against this very, very cold universe. I think for lack of a better term, David Chase might have been filming a literal scene where it's literally just Tony and the family meeting for a dinner and nothing happens. Yeah. But filming it and loading it. Choices. Dream symbolism Mm -hmm. and archetypes Mm -hmm. that are particular to Tony to show how these symbols and the subconscious world and our unconscious desires are with us all the time. Yes. And those are the things that ultimately carry us through life and help us deal with the big issues. Yes. Like the idea that we could die at any time. Yes. That is the world that each of us actually lives in. Yeah. Right. And that is absolutely weighing on Tony's mind as he walks into the diner. He's got to be thinking about death, you know, Junior's mind is gone. Yep. You know, so so many people he knows have just died. So many enemies of his have just died. I know. So that all makes sense. And I think that's a hard thing for audiences to swallow Okay, let's transition a little. Let's talk a little bit about just favorite dream sequences in general. Okay. Are there any that like stand out for you in the show that you just 
think are really I mean, fascinating. Obviously, the one that not counting the end, because I'm not even I don't even know where I land on that. But I obviously, know. the the big pussy dream is dude. That's the one for me. The fish one. That's it. On the boardwalk. That's it. And just the idea of like, that's a scene where he's, you know, feverish from bad oysters from Arnie. Oh my God, I forgot that's what it was. They blame the Indian food. Artie or Arnie? Artie. Artie Buko. Artie Buko. And um, the idea of like, Sometimes you have to listen to what your gut's telling you over what your head is rationalizing. Exactly, exactly, because your gut actually knows what's happening. Hey, you know you're being surveilled, and one of your buddies is betraying you. And I like that he worked out a real-world problem in that sequence. And it happens later in that episode, the test room, where he, where we get the high school locker room flashbacks. Yes. And he figures out that Tony B similarly is a problem that needs to be dealt with because Tony B, Steve Buscemi's character, because he's off going rogue. Yes. So I like the idea of taking a character who doesn't know himself very well in season two and is trying to use the tools, the few tools he's picking up in therapy to figure out. Exactly. He's picking up a few. Yes. A problem, but then it's also just feeds right back into what makes him a bad guy. You know, what makes him just a disaster of a human. David Chase said that when he was working on these dream sequences, because he was the one that wrote all of these, he was actually working with his own subconscious. So he said that he was going into these kind of meditative states and the image of Tony riding a bicycle to a fish market came into his head. And from there, he wound up coming up with this idea of the fish actually speaking, which in turn evolved into the old Godfather line about sleeping with the fishes. Mm -hmm. So it was a subconscious process. Like David Chase didn't have this idea right away. It evolved. And it's so interesting because it's like his subconscious came up with this little pun of like, sleeping with the fishes right yeah it's great so that just came that. out of him but it wasn't something that he felt like he came up with on his own yeah he's just following the visuals exactly there. i love that i guess i love this idea of like you know there's something about like david chase and david lynch two, yeah. you know two guys that are relatively the same age you know turning to dream symbolism in their their storytelling as a way to connect with characters and find deeper meaning within um a problem that needs to be to needs to be solved exactly exactly using it as a way of accessing more of our brain more of our intuition more of our knowledge and tackling a problem from like a broader perspective I feel like it's a very Shakespearean thing as well. Like a lot of like, you know, I studied classical theater in school and I feel like a lot of those classical texts and I'm generalizing, but are often like, I had a dream last night and this is what was happening in my dream. And my dream alerted me to a clue that something's off here. They knew how to take that seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's an old way. It's a very like classical way of thinking and interpreting that there is there, there is a strong correlation in drama, high drama between the inner life and the outer life and characters needing to turn to unconventional places for answers and ways to help solve their current problems. 
Yes. And when you can do that effectively in a story, it creates all of this gorgeous tension between the characters, sort of like inner and outer worlds. And it's so relatable because we all get to do the same thing. We're living in a time when I feel like a lot of people are trying to activate that, you know, that are turning to more like occult methods, like tarot card, you know, we talk about on this, you know, like tarot finding meaning and symbol, like active symbolism and and trying to engage with symbols in a meaningful way in our waking life. It's a more connected way of living, I would say. Yeah. And just trying to help. I mean, how many times now are you like, oh, I got a problem. Let me turn on my tarot deck or totally being like, give me a sign. And then you think you get one, you know, why not turn to the dream realm Mm -hmm. and be like, somebody down here is going to know something that I need to know, even if it's coming from deep within me. If we're all as in tune as Tony was with his for real. fish stream, we might figure out more problems. Oh my God. We got to give him props for that. But it's true because so often these messages are like, what are some of the things that I don't want to see? Right. <laughs> right. That the, the, the conscious rational mind is like, I don't want to look at this. It's inconvenient. <laughs> it's inconvenient. And the truth hurts. And You can probably think of five or six people in your life, maybe yourself included, that are all dealing with like blocks in their life. Like, oh, if they just did this, then this would be better. You know, and oftentimes there's something going on with yourself. You're like, man, if I just changed this, I'd probably feel better about it. But in order to do that, I have to admit that I failed or I, you know, or I have this weakness or I have this crutch that I got to get out of my way. You know what I mean? Uh, Whether it be like laziness or um, jealousy or whatever, you know, covetedness. I'm just pulling things out of the air here. The ways that we sabotage ourselves, the ways that our parts are wanting very different things. Yes. I want to read you this too, because I think this is cool and it speaks to different types of dreams in The Sopranos. So I'm reading this book right now by Anne Faraday. She was a dream researcher in the 70s and she was fantastic. But her book is called The Dream Game and she cites three different types of dreams. So she calls them like three faces of dreaming. One is looking outward. So that's when I am receiving that gut check, like that valid information about something that's actually happening in my world, right? So that's the big pussy dream. Like, you know, I'm an FBI informant, right? Mm-hmm. And then another type of dream is through the looking glass. So that's when like I'm getting information about my emotional reactions to things going on in my life, right? So in The Sopranos, you see a lot of dreams like that where a character is getting insight about something that's happening for them emotionally that they're not connected to. Melfi has dreams, like erotic transference dreams about Tony, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she also has that really powerful dream with the Coke machine and the dog. Yeah. It was like after her assault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing I love about the show is that like therapists go to therapy and we even added that layer, right? Of like her exploring these symbols. Her temptation for corruption after the worst possible thing happening yes, to you, you know, yes. where you're like, she like, was at a point where had she told Tony what happened, he absolutely would have found and murdered that guy. And absolutely. we would have all <laughs> been cheering him on. Yes. Yes. 
But then there's that brilliant final moment. She's like, sometimes you just have to say no. You have to say no. You have to stop yourself from going over the edge. Mm -hmm. And what a difficult, horrifying thing that is, even when there's something that's so unjust yeah unjust happening and you're like it could be fixed but you'd be crossing a line you could never go back on exactly i'm playing god yeah well okay so three right so we've got that one through the looking glass tons of good examples in the show about that type of moment and then we've also got looking inward so a picture of how we feel about our own inner world right so like how i feel actually about myself and all of the parts inside of myself so that for me i mean there's a lot of dreams like that in the show too but one that sticks out that i love is the calling all cars dream where tony's like in the back of the car and carmela's driving yeah Yeah, Yeah. and all these different characters start showing up but it's a symbol for him of feeling out of control in his life in these different situations he's not driving the car carmel is driving the car with the family he has no control over who's in the car and who's haunting him and showing up Mm -hmm. right so it's Mm -hmm. these ways that he feels like he's losing his footing and that was a later dream in the show i don't remember what season but it was definitely as things were starting to unravel it's set, so. yeah, I think it's like one of the last two seasons mm-hmm. for sure. So yeah, just a little fun tidbit. Is that around the time he and Adriana get in the car accident and they have to cover that up? Another loss of control. Another another very interesting moment. Yes. And also kind of unconscious sabotage of him and Christopher's relationship. Like yep. super because that was all unraveling too. Super interesting. Yeah, I got a, a person he's losing control of, you know, yes. and that's the thing that like Christopher Tony was. A, yeah, the wild card. Yeah, I know. And if you're running that type of business, you got to have control of everything or else exactly. that's when bad things happen. Yeah, exactly. Fast like at any cost. Uh, yeah, I have to maintain that. I would say if anyone's listening who has seen The Sopranos and hasn't watched it since it originally aired or yeah. it's been a long time. Like it was such a cool show to watch as a full grown adult. Agree. It works on such a different level when, I mean, there was a moment on the rewatch where I was like, Oh shit, I'm Tony's age now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Dude, like I like know. early on, I was like, Oh, he's in his like late thirties or his early forties. I, I was like looking up the age and I was like, Oh, we are the same age. Whereas the first time I watched it, I was Meadows age, <laughs> you know? So it's a very, right. like, who's that old guy? It's yeah, a very different experience. And I think one that's richer mm-hmm. for it. I agree. You know, I agree. Yep. It is. And will always be my favorite show. I love it. I think that it just teaches me, so much every time I watch it I learn more um so yeah I definitely think that revisiting it is a great idea it's a show that just it's deep it's rich it needs a little extra attention I think that The Sopranos is just too smart for us. I think it's just too smart for most of us, honestly. And that's why we're all still talking about it. It was ahead of its time, obviously. Obviously. Because we're still talking about it and don't understand it. But I also think that we're still talking about it because they they had the balls to deal with 
things that are mystical, things that are unknown, things that we can't conceptualize, mysteries of the world. I'm talking about things, Schrodinger's cat. I'm talking about things like alternate realities and that the universe can be unfolding in multiple spheres at multiple times, but we have no way to conceptualize that. And yet we sometimes encounter that. The good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking, about the good, I'm talking about the good stuff. You had me at the cat, Jordan. I think dreams are a big gateway into like being able to like speak this language. And that's why the Sopranos deals with dreams so well i think that they really understand how important they are and then i mean like maybe a conversation for another time but dreams as opposed to like almost like not hallucination but fantasy as opposed to like reality dreams like something that's slightly off reality and something that Mm -hmm. is like a fantasy there are dreams in the sopranos which are like i'm hallucinating my neighbor Mm -hmm. As opposed to, like, I'm at this family estate with my dead cousin. Yeah. You you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. even there, where do you draw the line? But again, because it's so rarely discussed, I guess, you you don't have that, that kind of, like, Venn diagram where those things can come in the middle and like intersect. It's just so weird because it's like reading an old textbook that still like holds up. There's good writing and good acting and good emotion in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why we're still talking about it. It's it's definitely the richest like sort of psychic content of any show that I have ever seen or probably will ever see. Um, This was so fun. If nothing else now, I just have like a fun like hour of us talking about Sopranos recorded and banked in my database. So that's awesome. Don't stop believing. Don't stop. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you again to my guests, Michael McMillan and Eduardo Domenech. I'm forever grateful to friends who can nerd out and dive deep. If you believe in this work and want to support the continuation of our show, please join us on Patreon. There we are building a community where you'll find bonus dream work exercises, guided meditations, fun minisodes, and so much more. You can find that at patreon.com backslash psyche magic. The link is in show notes. Don't forget, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, you'll be automatically entered into a monthly contest to win a free shadow work tarot session with yours truly. Even if all you can muster is a quick rating wherever you get your podcasts, we greatly appreciate it. It truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. Do you have questions or a dream you want to share? Please drop me an email at psychemagicpodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave me a voicemail via the link in show notes. I'd love to hear from you, and you could be featured on a future episode. You can also follow us on Instagram and TikTok, my favorite, at Psyche underscore magic. Also check out my Psyche Magic playlist on Spotify. The link is in show notes. Psyche Magic was produced, written, and recorded by me, Jordan Hale. Editing for this episode is by Masuzu Inaga. Our theme music is by Young Summer. Artwork is by Annika Murphy. 
Special thanks go to Daniel Higby, Michael McMillan, and Grace Fuse. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, psychemagicpodcast.com. Psyche Magic is available via Anchor across all podcasting platforms. Thank you so much for listening. I'll leave you with a question. If you must sleep through a third of your life, are you willing to sleep through your dreams too? Get your dream journals out, y'all. Until next time.